Hello from Queen's University, Belfast. I've been in Northern Ireland for two weeks, learning more about the history, the people, and the politics. There's so much to take in, and it's truly such a beautiful and resilient place. As I sit across the pond and watch U.S. divisions dominate headlines, family conversations, and social media feeds, I'm grateful to learn more about a region that has one of the most prominent peace deals in modern political history. But this came at a huge cost, and the people here in Northern Ireland have told me they worry that the U.S. will fall into a similar violent history if we continue to let extreme polarization take over our lives. I want to give a quick recap of history before diving in deeper with our guests today. Northern Ireland suffered a 30-year conflict, known to most as the Troubles. It's one of the longest conflicts of the past century. 3,600 people were killed, and more than 30,000 people were wounded before a peaceful solution was reached. That peace deal, known as the Good Friday Agreement, was signed nearly 25 years ago, and it's still in place today. Joining me today is Professor Richard English, Professor of Politics at Queen's University, Belfast, where he's also director of the Senator George J. Mitchell Institute for Global Peace, Security, and Justice. Richard's research focuses on the history of political violence, terrorism, and nationalism, and he's authored several books focusing on Irish freedom, as well as the IRA. Richard, welcome to Grounded on Purpose. I'm truly so honored you could join us. Thanks very much, Jen. I appreciate it. Much of the world knows the Troubles as a 30-year conflict, but a big misconception, outside of Ireland especially, is that this was a solely religious war between Catholics and Protestants. In your book, Armed Struggle, you describe the conflict as having layers. And one of the biggest layers is civil rights. A lot of how the conflict began and how it was resolved points directly to civil rights and has a lot to do with the 1960s civil rights movement in the U.S. and beyond. I think it's important to really understand this as we're in the midst of many civil rights movements right now in 2022. So can you just explain why the 1960s were a defining moment for the Troubles? The 1960s civil rights movement in Northern Ireland in some ways does reflect the kinds of layers that you're talking about there, Jem. First of all, it was, as across much of the world, a period when communities that felt they did not have the rights they deserved marched, protested, campaigned for it. Here in Northern Ireland, that involved the minority community, Irish nationalist in politics, Catholic and communal background, campaigning around things like housing, employment, access to political power, and believing that the state they were in, Northern Ireland, was neither legitimate nor fair. And that does reflect the fact that this is complex. It was a community and remains a community where there is a confessional division. Most people tend to be able to say that they're from one community or another in terms of its origins. And that would involve being Irish nationalist on the one hand, overwhelmingly of Catholic background, whether or not they believe in God. And on the other hand, pro-unionist, pro-UK, pro-British, overwhelmingly Protestant background, whether or not they attend church. So what you have is two rival nationalisms competing over state power and legitimacy, those who want Northern Ireland to remain in the United Kingdom and those who would prefer that Northern Ireland was in a United Ireland or a non-British setting. But those traditions, Irish nationalist and British nationalist, are ones which have long roots, including religious identification. So Irish nationalism long was an expression of the desire for the rights of the Catholic people in Ireland against the British state, which ruled Ireland and now Northern Ireland, but which was a British state which was Protestant. So it's not that it's not got any religious dimensions to it, but it's certainly not been a religious war. I think also the civil rights aspect of it is important because you see the ways in which 
different aspects of what people want can overlay each other in practice. So people campaigning in the 1960s about voting rights, about housing, about employment, were seen by people on the other community from the Protestant unionist community as really trying to undermine the state. And quite quickly, therefore, the civil rights movement of the 1960s developed into a tussle between rival nationalisms, Irish and British, over the legitimacy of the state. And you saw an acceleration from effectively no murderous violence in the late 1960s to something like a civil war by the early 1970s. So if we're drawing out something like the patterns of Northern Ireland, campaigns over day-to-day experience of jobs, of housing, of rights, attempts to try and change things through peaceful marching, feeling that things are not going fast enough for you, but on the other side, the people who have to give ground, feeling that too much too soon is being given, and the acceleration into intercommunal conflict and the descent into violence. In that sense, while every conflict is unique, you can hear echoes of what's happened elsewhere and possibly even pre-echoes of what might happen elsewhere in these layered situations of political polarisation and division. Yeah. And I think this really drives into the point of, you know, the rhetoric of politics of identity and centering around, you know, culture and politics. There are so many layers in, in, in all the conflicts, like you said. So when I'm looking kind of at the world today, we see things that are dividing us like COVID, abortion, gun legislation, LGBTQ plus rights, racial discriminations. And I, I think, especially in America, we kind of feel that we're kind of at a tipping point, right? And considering the history of all your work in the Troubles, and how you've lived through and studied through this 30-year conflict, you know, now it's it's 25, almost 25 years later, what kind of lessons can you offer other nations in terms of working through the divides and not necessarily coming to a full agreement on every issue, because that's just not possible, but how do we work through it? A few things that might be worth mentioning there include the time to sort out these divisions is before they become a really violent crisis. So if you're looking at the sorts of things which the 1998 Belfast or Good Friday Agreement in Northern Ireland provided as the basis for the ending of the conflict substantially, a lot of that could have been agreed in the 1950s or 1960s in terms of power sharing, in terms of rights, in terms of respect. But the difficulty is we tend not to deal with crises until they become crises. We don't anticipate them. So one thing is to try and deal with things to make it clear that there are peaceful ways of achieving the sorts of things that people understandably want rather than feeling the necessity of violence. A second thing which is interesting in relation to Northern Ireland is that none of the violent actors, whether pro-state terrorists, anti-state terrorists or state forces ended up getting quite what they wanted. In other words, what you end up is a sense of compromise rather than victory. And again, I think one of the things which Northern Ireland suggests is that many of these areas which you're mentioning, Jen, around complex debates are unlikely to end up 100 nil to one side or the other at the end. You're probably going to end up with things which everybody finds in some way disagreeable, but hopefully most people can live with. So the effectiveness of compromise and the inefficacy of non-compromise is partly what Northern Ireland exemplifies. I think a third thing which you hinted at is just how long these processes can take. Irish history has a long-rooted set of animosities, grievances and identities, which goes back a very, very long way. As you know, these islands more generally have those animosities built into their histories. But so too there are long futures and contingent futures in how we deal with them. So I think the idea of a quick fix is very difficult. And quite often the wonderful system we have of democracy with frequent elections can encourage a kind of short-termism. In other words, rather than thinking, how can we do things which over the next 50 years, over the next 100 years, will make people's lives better, will minimise human suffering. People tend to think, can I get elected in the next election? And sometimes those short-term rhetorical expressions of identity work against the interests of the people in whose 
interest the identity is supposedly being spoken. So from Northern Ireland, I think you're looking at long-termism, you're looking at the inefficacy of violence. I think what you need is the emphasis on dialogue aimed at compromise rather than more aggressive pursuit of victory. And I think Northern Ireland in that sense, while not offering lessons, offers intuitions about some of those other very complicated issues, which in the United States probably now have reached a state of polarisation in American politics, which is unprecedented for a long time. And therefore, I think what we're looking at is we all need the United States to be at peace with itself. And so I think what we need really is for people to find, are there ways of compromise being reached before a crisis tips over? Mm-hmm. And a lot of that has to do with the deep rooted issues, right? So I look at the Troubles and as I study it, it it really erupted in the 60s because of discrimination and because of things like gerrymandering and, you know, the the Catholics and nationalists were banned from most civil service positions. Policing was very much, you write about this, in 1998 at the end of the conflict, data showed the police force was made up of less than 10% of Catholics and nationalists. Why is that significant in the role of all of this? And has it changed in 20 years? A lot has changed over the last generation. And the main change, thankfully, has been that there's far less murderous violence. And so people can disagree politically without it being as bloodstained as it was. Policing is a really good point to mention, because in some ways, policing is where the state meets people in their most jagged ways. And significantly in Northern Ireland, policing and the one-sidedness of policing was part of the triggering of the Troubles. And at the end of the Troubles, police reform and the acceptance by many nationalists of a reformed police service of Northern Ireland was part of the ending or the soothing of the conflict and the moving to a more peaceful society. So I think issues of policing in divided societies are really crucial. And you raise an important point about representativeness. So the Royal Ulster Constabulary, the former police force in Northern Ireland, was overwhelmingly drawn from one side in a very divided community. And clearly that's not really something which the smaller community, the minority community can find comfortable. If you're being policed by the other community in a divided society, this is very, very difficult. On the other hand, getting people from that community to join a police force, which they feel represents a state that isn't fair or legitimate, is not easy. And over different fault lines in the United States, the same problems have been faced in terms of getting certain communities to trust the police, certain communities to work with the police, certain communities to join the police in enough numbers. Again, that has been a crucial part of the reform, a painful one for some, but an important one in Northern Ireland, moving towards a police service which everybody feels represents the community as a whole. In terms of the the wider pattern of discrimination, there is no question that for a long time Northern Ireland was a place which was weighted very much in favour of a unionist orientation. That's true of symbols. It was true of power. And part of the essence of the Good Friday Agreement of 1998 was that there were mechanisms to make sure that the two main communities had access to power in ways which avoided one community, whichever in the past or future was the majority, one community bullying or leaning on or intimidating the other. So trying to produce ways in which you can protect people's rights through access to power, but also through symbolic measures in terms of the ways in which people look around at the emblems of the state and feel that it is or is not representing them. These are difficult things to resolve, but they're at the heart of many of the issues we faced in Northern Ireland. They're also at the heart of many of of the issues around Brexit with the UK leaving the EU. They're also at the heart of the 2016 presidential election and the 2020 presidential election in the United States. They're also at the heart of many conflicts around the world. So in some ways, the combination of the symbolism, the access to power, and the ways in which communities can peacefully achieve the redress that they require, they've all been woven into the story of Northern Ireland politics and history during and beyond the Troubles. Yeah. And that policing part, I think, going back to kind of the 1960s and really reading your work, reading a lot about the conflict, it it almost was, the IRA was born out of that discrimination. You know, they 
they they tried peaceful protest and and violence still erupted. They reacted and there was more violence. You know, both sides were really at fault in in all the violence. But who are the IRA? And you know, am am I right to think they were born out of this discrimination because they really didn't have a voice in a lot of the civil service positions? The IRA of the modern period, the provisional IRA, the IRA which was active during the Northern Ireland Troubles, which was formed at the end of 1969, involved very normal people feeling that the state they were living in was neither legitimate nor fair, and taking the lesson from the late 60s, early 70s, that peaceful protests would not work. So in some ways you see what you often see in escalations in other conflict areas of the world, where people feel that they've tried other methods and the only way of trying to change things is through violence. And the only way of trying to change things in a state which is not legitimate or fair is to get rid of it. So that's what the IRA were pursuing. I think they were, as with any organisation, as with any large group of people, very varied, heterogeneous rather than one kind of person. I think what I would like to say is that, not always a popular thing to say, that people who are involved even in very violent terrorist organisations need to be treated as you treat any other people you're trying to understand. Look at them as normal humans who are making decisions based on the same range of emotions and reason that people make normal decisions, but in different situations from most live in. I think that doesn't mean that you're legitimating it. I think none of the violence in the Troubles on any side was legitimate. But I do think what you have to do is try and explain people in terms of normality rather than demonising or treating as heroes. The IRA, very telling organisation in that in the end they did agree to a deal which didn't involve the securing of their overwhelmingly central goals in terms of a united and independent island, but which did involve them having asserted nationalist rights, which did involve the political party that they're associated with, Sinn Féin, becoming very important in the government of Northern Ireland and increasingly now in Ireland more generally. Yeah, and, and I think that's important too. So the IRA, you know, a lot of what I learned through your writing, when the imprisonment without trial began in the 70s, that was against the, the Catholics and nationalists, Bloody Sunday, which was a peaceful protest, you know, born out of the civil rights, the peaceful marches we were having in America, they were trying to do that here. That added in 15 deaths and 15 injuries. There were hunger strikes in the prisons. So there was a lot that was going on where that portion of the population was trying to be peaceful. And a lot of these people said, they're only going to listen to force. That was a quote from an IRA member in your book. The British are only going to listen to force. So had they engaged, and I know hindsight's twenty twenty. But had they seen them as people, just like you were saying, had they had some kind of dialogue early on and some kind of notion, hey, these are human beings, we need to see them, and and on both sides, both British and on the nationalist Catholic side, could this dialogue have shifted things? And that's where we see it, I, I think, with the lessons in America. If we start talking now, early, like you said earlier, does that shift the whole narrative and maybe the whole history? It's a, it's one of the huge questions, Jen. It, could the troubles have been avoided? I mean, my own view is that probably in the late 50s, early 60s, there were opportunities to produce a reformed Northern Ireland, which most people in the North, Catholic or Protestant, Nationalist or Unionist could have lived with. But two things got in the way. I mean, one was that because it wasn't at that stage a big crisis, people felt there wasn't something needing to be done and needing to be shifted. But also, as is often the case in conflicts, the community which holds the greater power and which therefore needs to make the gestures to try and shift towards a greater sense of equality and inclusion 
doesn't necessarily have the confidence politically to make the gestures which would sort the problem out. I think a version of this can be seen in Israel-Palestine historically as well. So what you find, therefore, is that a p- group of people within the community which is less advantaged does say, actually, the only thing to do here is to use violence. The only way of getting attention or getting change is through violence. Interestingly, during most of the Troubles, most people from the nationalist community didn't support the IRA's violence, but supported politically. They would have voted more for the Social Democratic and Labour Party, a non-violent group. And so in that sense, there was still a very strong sense amongst many people from the minority community that while the grievances were huge and legitimate, the best way of pursuing them was not violent. I think could the compromise have happened earlier? I mean, two things there. One, I think the UK state, which was the state which was in charge of Northern Ireland, has the biggest responsibility. And I think earlier intervention in terms of getting involved, the parliament in Belfast was prorogued in 1972. Had it been prorogued in 1968 with London taking over, could reforms have been pushed through earlier? I think possibly they could. The second thing is that often when states react to initial violence, there's an over belief in what military methods can do. And in the early years of the troubles which you're describing, there were some heavy-handed, and in some cases fatally heavy-handed, actions by the British state, which seemed through the army's actions to reinforce the logic of what some of the IRA were saying. You know, if the IRA was saying the British state isn't on your side, and then soldiers came into your streets and were roughing you up, or in some cases tragically killing people, then the IRA seemed to be more legitimate than they would have been otherwise. And so in that sense, I think if states react with a less heavy-handed way, and if you try and address crises before they really boil up, you've got more chance. The United States in 2022 is a very different context from Belfast in the early 1970s. On the other hand, it's similar to this extent that you have communities that are shouting past each other rather than listening to each other, and you certainly have some people who feel that the normal processes of politics, the normal processes of reform, are not involving redress of the grievances that they rightly or wrongly feel. So there's a danger that you get an escalation moment where things quickly accelerate and then people feel they're justified in doing things that they wouldn't have felt justified in doing until the violence happens. What we saw in Northern Ireland was that people saw violence against their own community and felt that that justified a kind of tit-for-tat or responsive violence and quite quickly you get an escalation where people move to doing things they simply wouldn't have imagined doing a short time ago. So I think dialogue, I think trying to achieve compromise, I think respect for peaceful processes as the means of addressing people's grievances are very, very important. And I think they're, they're ways of trying to avoid the descent into the murderous violence that so long plagued this part of the world. Mm-hmm. And, and the dialogue really started to come together with John Hume and Jerry Adams, and they were, had very different viewpoints. But the one thing that I found, the kind of underpinning thread that, that wove this together was civil rights. So we all want our civil rights. And they started to see people. They started to see faces. And they engaged in this dialogue. So I was really struck because, you know, John Hume might not be a household name across the world. And I was in Derry and I saw this mural and it was Martin Luther King, Mother Teresa, Nelson Mandela with John Hume in a square together. And and again, many people don't know who Hume was. He received three major peace awards, including the Nobel Peace Prize. How did he really affect the dialogue and the peace process for those who don't know who he is? I think... John Hume is arguably the most important figure in the whole Northern Ireland Troubles. He was the leader of the Constitutional Nationalist Party, the Social Democratic and Labour Party. He'd been involved in the civil rights movement in the 1960s. He long argued that violence was not the best way of pursuing nationalist grievances. And more than anyone else, I think he embodied the kind of shape of the ideas that emerged in 1998 with the Good Friday Agreement. And I think in that sense, he's an emblem of two very important wider lessons. I think one is that the patient pursuit of 
talking to anyone and trying to produce agreement. He was much criticised for his talks with the Republican leader, Jerry Adams, at the time. But he was trying to persuade Adams that the Republican movement should shift to a more peaceful way of doing its politics. And he felt that the only way of doing that was through dialogue. So I think that patient, painful process of long-term engagement with people is one thing which Hume exemplifies and a non-violent one, which I think was very admirable. The other thing is, interestingly, that despite his probably being the most important person in the Troubles, he's less famous than some of those associated with more violent groups. And again, we do see that globally. One thing terrorism, one thing political violence does often seize is the headlines. So as in the Basque country, people tend to know more about ETA, the terrorist group, than about the PNV, the non-violent group. So too, I think violence does have the mechanism of seizing attention. In the end, though, the deal we ended up with in Northern Ireland was much closer to what John Hume wanted than to what the IRA wanted. And I think Hume deserves huge credit for his persistent patience in trying to produce agreement and trying to produce the basis for people, as you say, humanising each other, seeing not territory but people, seeing not borders but people who live across a border or need to be persuaded that a border should change rather than forced into it. And for all of that, I think he does remain one of the most powerful emblems of some of the more benign traditions within this part of politics, a pragmatism, a dialogue, a bravery, and an attention to the idea that the costs of violence are going to outweigh their achievements, which I think was at the heart of what he was trying to argue. Hume felt that violence divided the Irish people rather than united them. And I think in that he was profoundly right. Another figure who is not as well known, certainly I didn't know much about him before diving into this, was Father Alec Reed, And he brought Hume and Adams together in the church. So it almost felt like, okay, neutral ground, let's talk here. He famously tried to save a British soldier who had been shot in the street. And that was very controversial, you know, and the image is one of the most famous images of the trouble. And in his pocket was a secret peace process documents, and it was splattered with blood. And that just, you know, that image and, and that image of him trying to save the soldier knowing there was the peace agreement in his pocket, trying to solve this again through those nonviolent means, really stood out to me. And and I loved, he called himself a ghetto diplomat. He said he believed dialogue was the only way out of this conflict. And that kind of mediation, so him bringing them together at an early stage, Hume taking that nonviolent, long game approach, let's keep talking, okay? We're not gonna solve this today. How is that translated to today, especially in a world where we are just on 24-7, technology is driving us, social media is siloing us, you know, do we still have room for these long conversations and these diplomats who can engage in long game dialogue? I hope so, because they're vital. I mean, Mm -hmm. Father Reed was a good example of somebody who was able to establish trust and to set up conversations in ways that would have been very difficult publicly, but which could be done privately. He's also, as with some Protestant clerics like the Reverend Harold Good, a Methodist minister, was able to try to draw on some of the the religious resources in terms of those traditions to which many of the people involved in the conflict would give allegiance. And and while people often think of religion as being part of the conflict in a negative way in Northern Ireland, it's also true that much of the tendency towards compassion, forgiveness and so forth limited the violence, that there were people who called for no revenge when their loved ones were murdered. There were people like Alec Reed or Harold Good who tried to engage in dialogue across as well as within communities. So those resources are there and they're very important in Northern Ireland as in some other parts of the world. It is an interesting counterfactual question. Had we had social media in the late 80s, early 90s, would we have got the same outcome in the peace process in Northern Ireland? Because things would have been made much more famous, much more quickly to many more people. And it would have been more difficult, therefore, to hide. I mean, if everyone had had an iPhone, there would have been more photos of people talking to each other and so forth. 
On the other hand, I do think there is a need for those interlocutors, people who can be between people who can't maybe speak or set up connections themselves, but who might trust an intermediary to get them to take messages back and forward, who might trust an intermediary to set up a meeting and to explore possibilities. My own view is that broadly speaking, the more dialogue there is, if it's not going to damage someone publicly and so that they lose their position of political influence, the more dialogue there is, the more chance of people complexifying and humanising the person who's their enemy. And I think if people meet people from the other community in conversations where they're meeting them as humans whom they get to know, maybe get to trust, maybe get to like in the peace process in Northern Ireland, often at grassroots level, but also at high political level, personal relationships between individuals establish the possibility of exploring where compromise could go. That is all absolutely essential. I mean, that's essential in terms of Russia and Ukraine, let alone the problems which people face within particular states. The more you can have possibilities of listening and of building human relationships, the more you have an antidote to the megaphone violence diplomacy, which can also be productive for some people's political careers. So I would say that is there still room for this kind of thing? I think there is. Sometimes when things seem very, very bleak, you can invest in certain kinds of building a friendship and it may not be something where the returns are evident this year, but three or four years time, there may be a different kind of moment and those trusting relationships can therefore allow for people to get in the room to believe that someone is somebody they can trust, someone they can respect, someone they can like. We need more and more of that. We still need that in Northern Ireland. We haven't moved away from animosity politically. It's mostly non-violent now, but it's still a very divided society. We need more trust and more relationships between the main political communities here. But it's also true across the United Kingdom around Brexit. You need more friendship rather than animosity and abuse across the divide on that one. It's true in the United States. You need more people listening on some of the issues which you mentioned earlier, Jen, which are very emotive and very divisive, but where people will need to find some way of listening to the people whom they disagree with more than is currently common. Do you think, I keep hearing in the room and it makes me think, do you think the space in which you're meeting is important? Because oftentimes, you know, when we're on social media and research shows us this, we type quickly, we say whatever we're thinking very quickly without pausing and thinking it through, like, what is this going to do? I don't see the human on the other side of the screen. So do you think in dialogue and in conflict and all your work, being in the room, is that important? Or can we engage in important dialogue through Twitter or through, through social media? I think it's more difficult through social media. I think during the pandemic of the last few years, we've all discovered that we can use various platforms which don't involve being in the room, but you can still talk. I also think that's not the same as actually being in the room and getting to know people. I think the spaces in which you feel comfortable are important. People need to feel that they're not on enemy territory when they're being asked to listen. I think people also need sometimes to get away from the place where the conflict is happening. I mean, I think sometimes it's easier to talk to people you disagree with if you're somewhere else. I think sometimes, therefore, you can creatively use space to create opportunities for people to build friendships, which then might feed back into a return to where they're from. Anything which increases the possibility that you see the complexity and humanity of the person you disagree with, anything which encourages you to understand why the person you disagree with why even the person you don't like is who they are and why they are, is likely to diffuse the chances of your supporting brutality against them. So in that sense, the stereotypes that we've been mentioning, in that sense, the the effects of violence, which does drive communities apart from one another, because you're less likely to want to work in a community with people who are part of a group or which has a group that might be violent against you, the more you can move towards shared space, whether it's in schooling or in dialogue or in political negotiations, the more you can diffuse the likelihood of awful human suffering. Mm-hmm. And I, I think, you know, I'm thinking of Jerry Adams and John Hume in the room talking. I'm thinking of what you just said that, you know, dialogue and long games here, 
are very important. And throughout the 90s, I'm just thinking if Jerry Adams were to tweet uh, what he said at that time when the peace settlement was coming to be, he said, this is not a peace settlement. It's a basis for advancement. It's transitional. It's an accommodation. It heralds a change in the status quo. It's a transitional stage towards a democratic peace settlement. And it could become a transitional stage towards reunification. So this rhetoric, you know, when he says it, even in person, or he says it, and you know that they've been talking throughout the decade, it's a little different in context that way. Whereas a short, quick soundbite or a short tweet or TikTok video, I don't know if they would do TikTok, (laughs) um, it could come off a little differently. But how did that transparency, obviously it helped. I mean, the the peace settlement did, did come to be, but how was that reflected? And did anyone say, whoa, 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 we wanted peace. And now this guy's kind of backing away from it. So I think from Mr. Adams' point of view, clearly the 1998 agreement wasn't the final bit of the journey. It was seen as being something which would be the basis for a different kind of politics by the Republican movement, shifting more away from violence towards a more peaceful way of doing business and the political party Sinn Féin becoming more and more important in that movement. And from a Republican point of view, that's entirely what you would expect. And it's it's reflects their views and fair enough. I think what you found in in 1998 was that there was a lot of mistrust still. The unionist community, the pro-UK community, felt that the peace process might be giving too much and might be undermining their position in the union. I don't think it actually did. I think in some ways, by respecting the views of the majority in Northern Ireland, which is at the heart of the Good Friday Agreement, unionists got the big result that they needed, that if a majority in Northern Ireland want to stay in the UK, that's what's going to happen. And they got Irish nationalists to agree to it. Had there been Twitter, it would have been more difficult to get the kind of things that happened in the very fine-tuned bits of phrasing in the peace documents of the 1990s, where there's a a tension to, on the one hand, this, and on the other hand, that. That's more difficult to communicate through Twitter than it would be through longer speeches. But I think the key thing about it is that if, if the main representatives of all of the main actors in the Troubles felt that there was more reward from a more peaceful way of doing business, then in pragmatic, hard-headed terms, that's where it would go. Part of that was because the violence hadn't produced what anyone quite thought they were going to get through it. Partly it was because there were various different things coming together in terms of greater involvement from the United States towards a peace process, interest from the European Union towards a resolution of it, good relations between Dublin and London politically at the time. And so those things were all propitious as well. So there was a sense that at local level, at national level, at global level, things were pushing towards some kind of dialogue which might give peace the opportunity of working. It wasn't certain, it wasn't inevitable, it could have gone a different way. And I think that's another important lesson of this. These things are in no way inevitable. But I think there was a lack of trust. Many unionists would still not trust Mr Adams. They would still see him as somebody that they wouldn't trust and wouldn't like. On the other hand, I think it is important if you're going to get communities to deliver a deal like this and deliver on it, you need people like Jerry Adams to be involved because they need to bring their people with them. Just as on the unionist side in 1998, the Ulster Unionist Party leader, David Trimble, was very important to try and persuade unionists that this was a compromise worthy of their support. So leadership played a significant part in it, but also people needed to believe that there was going to be a better future for them, for the children, their grandchildren, if this was done. And I think that sense of not wanting the future to be as bloody as the past was a big part of what happened in the 90s. Yeah. And I think in 1998, a lot of times from looking at the history books or kind of reading this with broad strokes, you think, oh, 1998, there was a peace agreement. We were good. But something you wrote really struck me. In 1998, you said, One in five had a family member killed or injured. One in four had been caught up in an explosion 
more than 18,000 people had been charged with terrorist offenses from 1972 to 2003. And, you know, just reading these statistics out loud, this is a very divided community, very divided. And I'm really surprised, and maybe this is the, you know, I'm too cynical, but I'm surprised there was any kind of peace agreement but obviously they they came to that. And and you point to three internal rather than external forces that were crucial. Can you kind of walk us through those and explain how that helped? I, I, I can. I mean, I, I think the pain that is behind those figures that you've just talked about is huge because for many people, the deal was one which was very painful to accept given that they've got a photograph on the wall of a family member who was murdered. And of course, they feel that that loss was something which... You know, if the prisoners involved in the organisation that murdered their father or their grandfather was going to, were going to be released early, that's a very painful thing for people to live with. So these processes and the implementing of these processes makes a huge difference. And it's something which I think is going to take a long time and not everybody will be brought with it. The factors which I think were most important, and I think often this is the case with conflicts, it's the local things which are the most important. I mean, one was that violence wasn't bringing the victory, that the IRA on the Republican side, loyalist groups like the UDA or the UVF, pro-UK terrorist groups were getting, or the British state wasn't through military action going to be able to get rid of the IRA. So in that sense, there was a stalemate situation. It wasn't that there was equal power, but there wasn't an immediate likelihood that you were going to get a result through the violence. So there was a hard-headed decision, well, maybe plan B is necessary. A second aspect was it that the UK government and its relations with the Irish government put together a set of things which appealed in different ways to different communities. So if you were in the community which had a lot of prisoners, whether loyalist Protestant prisoners or Catholic Republican prisoners, if you had a lot of prisoners and the peace process would mean prisoner release, this was an advantage. If you're from the nationalist community and you saw police reform being part of a peace process, that was something which was attractive. If you're from the unionist community and the peace process might mean guaranteeing the consent principle for the majority in Northern Ireland, that was attractive. So while there were always things that people looked at and didn't like, there were enough things in the peace process that suggested actually, you know, not only is the first point true that violence isn't getting us a result, but the second one is maybe the peace process will give me some of these things I actually quite like. If you're a Republican and you find that you're going to have more access to people voting for the party, more access to the media than during violence, those things are attractive. A third part of it, which is less commented on, but I think is important, is that some of the key actors on all sides recognise that some of their prior views may be needed to be rethought. So for those people on the British or the Unionist side who thought the Nationalists were basically just exaggerating their grievances or their identity problems, there had to be a recognition that Nationalist grievance and identity and feeling and the weight of those views and of those issues was really something that you had to deal with and respect. You couldn't just push it aside. If on the other side, if you're an Irish Republican and you thought, well, unionists will somehow magic themselves into being nationalist and it'll all be okay and it'll suddenly change, the fact that unionists hadn't shifted at all from their unionism meant you had to respect the legitimacy and long weight of that. If you're a Republican and you wanted the UK to pull out of Northern Ireland and then you discovered that economically that was going to be disastrous, that meant there was rethinking for you. Uh, So in other words, on all sides, I think the Irish government, the British government, nationalists, republicans, unionist lawyers, everyone recognised there were some things that they had misthought in the past. They probably exaggerated their stereotypes of the other side and began to rethink them. And that pushes you towards long-termism. Now, if you need a longer shift towards economic stability after Britain leaves, that means that you're probably looking at a longer-term peace process. If you think you've got to accommodate nationalist grievances, that means you're reforming Northern Ireland more than the unionists would want. So I think the combination of the violence not producing the victory people hoped it would, there being some rewards in the peace process you wouldn't get if violence continued, and maybe admitting that on some things you'd been a bit wrong. Put those together and you had the possibilities of peace. Not the certainty, but I think the possibilities of peace. Yeah, That last point, that 
admitting the possibility you might be wrong. I find that we are so dug in into our identities and it's really hard, you know, not just in politics, just as people, you know, I am this and this is, you know, there are labels on us. What are some ways we can be more open-minded and see that maybe we're in an echo chamber or we're in a silo and we need to listen to that other side, even if we don't agree? It's, it's the huge point that advanced democracies face at the moment, I think, Jen, because it's one of the difficulties at, at this present juncture that we're dividing into communities that agree with me and then we're not listening. I mean, two things I would say which are possibilities. One is if you find the best version of the case you least sympathise with and listen to it, you'll probably have a slightly different view of the layers of what you're facing. So I think, you know, you mentioned earlier in our conversation issues around guns in American culture and also around abortion debates, two very, very strongly divisive issues. If you can find the best argument that someone puts for the opposite view and listen to it and think about it, that's one part. The other thing is that actually mixing with people who disagree with you is really, really crucial. So there's a tendency, we're a self-segmenting species. We like to, whether it's around fashion or music or food or whatever it is, we tend to self-segment. But finding that you're in the presence of people who are not automatically agreeing with you is really crucial. There, I think universities and schools can play a significant part. In Northern Ireland, still at high school level, people are overwhelmingly educated in schools that draw on one community rather than the other, which I think is a big problem. At university, I work here at Queen's University, Belfast. It is a very mixed community. And I think the opportunities are there if people want them to say, well, the other people I'm sitting with in a lecture theatre, the other people I'm, I'm mixing with, if I want to mix with them, will have different background, different politics, different culture, different assumptions. And humanly engaging with people so that you're not always meeting with people who agree with you on whichever issue it is, is absolutely vital. I think probably for all of the enormous benefits that social media does bring, it, it makes it easier if you want to to exist in a community where everyone's agreeing with you. But I think that the mixture of trying to find the best case of what you don't agree with and also trying to meet some people you don't agree with on a friendly basis and having some kind of comedy where you disagree with courtesy, if that happens more and more frequently, then we, we're more likely then to get the politics that reflects that. And I think that's something which is, is very important. Whether we'll do that or not, Jen, I'm, I don't know, because at the moment things don't look particularly favourable. I mean, that's right. true in, in Northern Ireland. It's true in across the UK. It, it's true across the Brexit politics. You've seen it in French politics. You've seen it in the USA. And there are certainly rewards from being more belligerent, more denunciatory. Having said that, I think as societies, we need to look at those things where we we share across the boundaries of disagreement. And a lot of that is going to produce the possibilities of compromise. And, and, and we're rarely 100% right about something. And often I think there are ways, therefore, of tempering certainty yeah that's a really good point we don't have all the answers right we, we need to question ourselves and question our views and be with different people i think in the u.s a lot of people are moving to places where everyone agrees so you can be in a bubble and covid you know allowed that to happen a little more you could work remotely you could find your place and and that's something where i think that when being here, that that is something I have looked at more because you have places like Derry where you have people who are very different. Granted, there's there is a wall still in Derry. Uh, there, you know, there are very much separations, but there's also places throughout Northern Ireland where the schools are intentionally integrated, where where students have to go together. You know, Protestant, Catholic, whatever their views are. How did you get there? And how how do we get there? <laughs> how did you get there? What are some of those? 
you know, ways we can mix different views at an, I think at an early age is important too. Yeah, I mean, it's been a challenge here in Northern Ireland because people have tended to want to have separate education. There has been a strong set of advocates for formally integrated education in Northern Ireland. And also there is work done, including by some of my academic colleagues here at Queen's University Belfast, on ideas where even if schools are separate, that they come together for some activities or, or where there are things which involve some kind of community of sharing and dialogue. All of that, I think, is wonderful. Longer term, my own preference would be that the school system was one which didn't involve the communal segregation. I think that's also true of other, of other settings. The difficulty is that the more polarised the rhetoric, and particularly if there is violence, the more people feel safer segmenting into silos because you want to protect the people you love and therefore you don't want to take the risk of being in, in violent situations. What can we do about it? I, mean, I think that the more you can get a sense that everyone is welcome in every room, and I think in that sense, there are ways in which communities can say, well, it's difficult with this set of institutions, but it might work with that set of institutions. I think universities can play a significant role, particularly with the increasingly high levels of numbers of people who are going into higher education. I think you need also to look at the ways in which some very important institutions, policing we've mentioned earlier on is a very good example of that. Sometimes symbolically in politics too, I think making sure that the, the politicians who are running your polity are people who are sufficiently representative of all different kinds of people for you not to feel that it's them running me or it's them telling me what to do, but it is something where there is a chance of expression of identity becoming politically powerful. All of those are possible, but they're not easy. And I think we do have to look at ways of, of challenging some of the more divisive pronouncements of politicians and saying, actually, that isn't quite how things are or you know actually not not just denouncing them or they're certainly not denouncing those who vote for them but saying that's not quite what the evidence suggests i think in those ways you can begin to get communities of of conversation which is what i would be looking for education is important where people work where they feel comfortable but also i think in public spaces it's absolutely vital that people feel that the symbols around them and the comfort comfort that they feel being in public spaces allows them to feel that they don't have to be violent or aggressive in order to try and assert their rights Something struck me, something else in Derry. It was it was such a, a great visit because we, we visited kind of both sides. We visited the Apprentice Boys Museum. We visited the Free Dairy Museum. So we really got to hear about the conflict from two very different sides. Um, and we were walking around the square and looking at the murals. And I saw a lot on Israel and Palestine. I saw a lot of, you know, Union Jack flags. And then I saw an IRA cutout basically on a lamppost. And... It's, I was thinking, I was really conflicted, to be honest. I was like, gosh, that's that's a lot in your face, right? But also, all these things are existing together. What are your takeaways as someone who's from here, who, who understands this? Is that a healthy way to have kind of all the symbols around, or is that dividing more? I think it's more divisive. I think partly it's about reinforcing which bits of territory are which in a still divided society. You see that with the flags that relate to Britain and Ireland. But as you say, there are also vicarious flags. So you'll find, you know, Palestinian flags tending to be flown in Republican areas, Israeli flags in Union loyalist areas. So, so there is a way in which there are different ways of marking out territory. And to some extent, of course, that makes you less comfortable if you're under a lamppost with a flag on it and it's someone else's flag they've put it there so that you know that that's their area and those things therefore are more divisive what we've tried to do in in northern ireland is to try and get ways in which there's the opportunity for as open a set of spaces and symbols as possible one one of the things that's happened on on 
good occasions, I think, is that sometimes politicians have been able to symbolise a respect for the other community's tradition, whether that's going to a sporting occasion associated with the other community, whether that's going to a particular ceremony of memory or of remembrance in ways that you wouldn't automatically expect to happen. And I think sometimes those gestures can have a bigger effect than they seem to merit because people look and think, well, this person whom I assume to be an enemy is respecting my tradition or my culture or whatever. I think more of that would help. My own sense is that the the marking out of territory is, is part of a, a, a desire to be secure in terms of the area you're in, but there's also obviously an exclusivism tied in with this. And where you have rival nationalisms, I mean, you mentioned Israel, Israel is a very good example of this, where you have rival nationalisms that are persisting. There's a sense that tactically people want to hold on to the territory they've got and not give too much ground, because if you give ground, you might not get it back again. So that animosity is there. On the other hand, in Northern Ireland, as in Israel-Palestine, there isn't going to be a sheer victory for one side or the other, where it's utterly decisive. What you're going to end up with is some attempt at, at best, some attempt at some compromise that most people can respectfully live with. There, I think, Think that the the emblematic markers of this is my street not yours are less helpful than other ways of approaching people i think yeah and, and i think bringing people together kind of to, to wrap up a lot of this conversation is to kind of recognize people as humans re- recognize people behind the issues and oftentimes we don't do that we see again these labels on people or we see a post and it's very divisive and we want to respond But something you write about through the words of Irish historian and politician Tom Hartley is the need to recognize everyone on all sides of the aisle as people. And and that's really what, you know, a lot of this conversation is about and a lot of what we're missing in in politics in general and something I've seen in, you know, 20 years covering it. So do you think part of the political chaos we encounter has to do with these political identities that we can't look past and see that human being sitting there, gosh, that's someone's mom? That's someone's sister, that's someone's dad or grandfather. Is that what we're missing through all this, that human connection and just that little piece of common ground that's so important? I I think it is a a risk if we do miss that. I think if you individualize, it's easier to sympathize. I think if you think of someone as being an example of X, you can somewhat dismiss them if you think of them as a human as someone who was held as a baby by their parents if someone who has loss and emotion and the same way that you do i think the individualizing of it is important which is why i think actually getting to know people who disagree with you is a really important part of all this because then you have to show some kind of respect for individuality i think also for complexity so you know if somebody's a member of the ira they're also possibly a father, they're also possibly a husband, they support a particular team at sport, they have particular music they listen to, they have certain fears, they have, they've got all other stuff which is normal too. And often people can't see past, particularly if it's a violent actor, they can't see past the violence to the person and all those other things. But sometimes those are the things that you can hook onto, particularly if a conflict has, as here in Northern Ireland has abated, you can see someone as someone who listens to music like you or who supports the same team as you. And those things are non-trivial because they, they show the complexity, they're the blizzard of things that makes you as a person. I think the other thing is that we change over time. So, you know, politicians, some of the people we've been describing were in politics for a very long time. And over that period, of course, they're not the same. They change and people learn and people build opportunities to set up relationships. So what I would be looking at is, you know, to individualise, to recognise the complexity and to recognise the possibility of a change. None of these things around political identities and conflicts is inevitable. They're all contingent and we can shape them to some degree for better or for worse. So I think if you individualise and you complexify and you look at the possibilities of change, you're more likely to avoid the descent into the worst kinds of conflict that 
that can emerge. So in the United States, I mean, some people who look from one side politically at the other side will only see the badge of the president they're voting for. They won't see the, the, the compassionate person, the friend, the, the person who's funny to talk to, the person who's kind to their neighbours. And I think seeing the things that are appealing and admirable about the people you politically disagree with is a big part of this. At the moment, we're moving backwards on that across much of the world. But I think unless we move forwards on that, we're going to be losing out on opportunities because there will be a polarising tendency to those stereotypes. And I think one thing Northern Ireland has reflected is that when you get polarising stereotypes, particularly if you bring violence into it, then you're in for a long haul of horrific things in some cases before you can begin to dig yourselves out of it. So we need to do less blocking, less unfriending, less muting, especially on social media. More listening. More listening. And more being prepared to listen in a way that doesn't involve you assuming the other person's completely wrong. I mean, I think you, 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 you won't probably in most of these cases fully change the mind of someone else. But I think if you can understand more of why someone is as they are, that makes it less likely that there'll be some sympathy for violence against that community or violence against that individual. And often I think it's the, it's the use of actual violence, which is the thing we're really trying to prevent here, whether, yeah. it's, whether it's over race in the United States or whether it's over nationalisms rivaling over state power in Northern Ireland. What we need to do is to find ways of non-violently disagreeing and resolving things. And the best time to do that is before it accelerates into awfulness, into civil war. I think something too, just on the last point there, when you go into a conversation, I think it's really important, and I've learned this through, you know, talking to so many different kinds of people throughout the years. I don't, and as a journalist, you don't, you know, you are very impartial, but I am not going to change this person's mind. I need to listen and learn more. There's a great power in that, right? In politics. There is. And I think also, if you listen, you can, you can sometimes make someone tweak some of their certainty by the questions that you ask. If you're a journalist, you can do that. I think you can also draw attention to things which don't attempt to demolish the building of their ideas, but which might say this bit of the building may need to be rethought, rebuilt. And I think quite often there are things where people, because of the echo chambers in which we so often regrettably live, sometimes people just don't know stuff about other people's experience. They have therefore assumptions about what it's like to be this kind of person or that kind of person. And often just seeing and hearing what it's actually like being that person can begin to make people reflect and change. Some of the people I've interviewed in the work I've done on Northern Ireland have significantly change their views during their career and it's often because they end up meeting people in different circumstances and the more you move towards the possibility that you get to know a different range of people in different ways there are sometimes quite striking friendships of respect people still have different flags or different traditions but they're not viewing each other in the way that they did 25 or 30 years ago and i think that is a huge result for all of the flaws in the northern island peace process it is an example of how a conflict that people thought would never end has moved towards largely non-violent ways of disagreeing. And that in itself is, I think, a very positive achievement. Yeah. And you've you've been through or going through Brexit. You're going, you know, this is 25 years. So that can't be underestimated because I think when looking through history, how can we be better? This is a huge part of how we can be better and how we can learn from this. Um, is there anything else you want to add? I think we've covered a lot. I think we have too. I really appreciate your time. Thank you so much. And I hope this is the first of many conversations. So thank you again for taking the time and helping us learn more about the peace process, what what was before you know the peace process, the conflict, and uh, really how we are where we are today and what we can learn from all of this. So thank you, Richard. Thank you very much, Jen. Enjoyed the conversation. Thank you. Thank you. 
Thank you for listening to Grounded on Purpose. If you enjoy the podcast, please take a moment to subscribe and leave a rating, which helps others find us and helps our small team to know we should keep producing more episodes. You can also follow us on Instagram at Grounded on Purpose. Every day is a gift with a new lesson. Please join us once a month as we get grounded together on purpose. Thanks again for listening.